following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You are in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 14 to 20, as we have been doing the last few weeks, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will look at verse 14, Mark writes this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus, we just come today and very simply ask for your guidance, your wisdom. We ask for you to open our eyes to your truth. We have been last Sunday as well as today trying to come to a right understanding of what genuine Christian discipleship looks like what it's going to mean for these men who you're calling to yourself to follow you, what it's going to mean for them to be your disciples, and then as a result of that, as an application of that, what it means for us. And so this is is very important for us to understand, Lord, because we are committed to not simply viewing you as a mascot to an ideology that we want to subscribe to. You are God. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are not a person to be trifled with. And we don't want to name your name lightly. We want to understand what it means to be a disciple, and we want to live it. We struggle with that. We admit that up front. We have confessed and will continue to confess many, many failures on this front. But Lord, as we work through your text again today, as we think about this issue of discipleship again today, Continue to do a work that only your spirit can do to open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand what it is you're calling us to, what it's going to mean, what it's going to look like, what it's going to do in our, in our lives, in our families, and in this church. We give you this time in the word, pray your blessing on it, pray that your spirit will open up the eyes and hearts that no human words could ever open, and that through this you will receive all the glory today we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this past Thursday, uh, not this past Thursday, excuse me, the Thursday prior was a special day in our family. It was my mother's, see, it is this thing. All right, there we go. It was my mother's 70th birthday. And so because, and, and that's kind of hard to believe for me because, one, I don't really feel old enough to have a mother who's 70, but I am old enough to have a mother who's 70, and she is, in fact, 70 now. And uh, so because it was the 70th birthday, we decided to try to make it as special of a day for her as we could. And so we gave her a number of things that we were going to do, a number of options that uh, we had available uh, for that day for her. And one of the things that she wanted to do was she wanted to go out for breakfast. And so we said, great, where would you like to go for breakfast? And so my mother chose Golden Corral for breakfast. Now, I'm not a Golden Corral hater like some people I know, Becca Hensler. I'm, nor 
nor am I, or do I view people who go to Golden Corral occasionally as some people do as trailer trash. But, you know, that's not at all the way it is for me. I will admit up front that I have enjoyed Golden Corral many times in my life, uh, though I don't go as often now as perhaps I did when I was younger. We used to like it quite a bit. And if we do go, it's normally for breakfast, because I do kind of like their breakfast buffet, I'll be quite honest with you. The reason I like it is it's just basic breakfast food. Like, I don't want anything fancy for breakfast. I want sausage, I want eggs, I want toast, I want grits, I want hash browns. Nothing foofy, nothing special, just the, just the basics. In fact, um, I don't know if I should tell the story, but I'm going to. Uh, a few years ago, we had a men's prayer breakfast on a Saturday morning. We used to do this from time to time. Uh, we haven't done it in a while, but we had a men's prayer breakfast. And, and to understand the history of that, it, it used to be you know, very, very simple. The men got together early on a Saturday morning, and we either had nothing at all to eat beyond like you know, maybe some donuts or coffee, stuff like that. Or occasionally someone would make some eggs and sausage and some of those things. We even had steak and eggs one time. Someone brought a whole bunch of steak over to Ed's house, and we grilled all this steak, and it was great. So you know, that's my expectation walking into this particular incident. And we go into this uh, person's house, this couple's house. We'd open up their door, so it's very kind. And the wife had said, I'll make, I'll make dinner. I'll make breakfast for you. You guys just show up and, and have your time together. So we walk in the door, and uh, I'm like, great, what's for, what's for breakfast? She's like, well, I made a casserole. And I'm, I'm good with a breakfast casserole. I can, I can handle that. But it wasn't a normal breakfast casserole. It was like with French cheese and weird sausage and rosemary and all this other stuff. It was very, and then we had like a fruit salad on the side and, and we're all like, oh, thank you. But as I'm eating, I'm going, this isn't what I wanted at all. I just like regular, regular, basic breakfast items, which is why, again, I like Golden Crow. But having said that, the, the more I go there over the last, you know, five or six years or so, the less I am liking my experience. And this past time at Golden Crow gave us um, new reasons to perhaps reconsider ever going there again. We saw three things there that, that made us very much regret this. Number one... It's like 9 o'clock in the morning, and we're, we're at the, the buffet, and we see this woman coming back from the buffet. She has an entire plate, heaping plate of fried chicken at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm not against having fried chicken for breakfast, but it just seemed a little odd, A, that they would provide that as an option for your breakfast, not to mention the full taco bar beside it, but um, B, that anyone would want it. So she's taking this plate back to her table, and I guess she enjoyed her fried chicken. The second thing we saw that concerned us was based where we were sitting. We were sitting near the ice cream dispenser. And a man walks up to the ice cream dispenser who, and I, I mean this with no disrespect to him, i just trying, trying to help you envision what we saw. He was probably three times my size. I'm not a little guy. He was, he was a larger gentleman. And he walks up with a plate, not a dessert plate, a plate. And he begins to build a perfect line of ice cream around the outer edge of the plate as a fence, I think. And then he proceeds to fill in the interior of the plate with ice cream so that by the time he's done, he has a plate of ice. And Jamie and I are eating as we're watching this, and we're just like, I'm not going to fill the whole plate. He filled the whole plate. I, that was number two. But the third one was the one that got me so much, I actually had to take a picture of this. Um, it's up at the, the buffet. I'm just going to simply show you the picture. And I know you're tempted at first to notice the, the uh, sausage links that are floating like pool toys in the grease or water or greasy water, whatever that is. Um, but I want you to pay attention to the thing in the middle 
Does anyone have any idea what this thing is? What? It's not fish at all. Here you go. You ready? I don't know if you said it. I didn't hear it. This is battered, deep-fried bacon. So, so I'm assuming that they are taking strips of bacon and they're running it through their fried chicken flour mix and then dropping it in the fried chicken deep fryer. I know this because I did try to taste it. I'm admitting it, all right? I tried it, and it, it tastes like fried chicken on the outside, but with a bacon finish kind of thing. You know, it, 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 it sounds delicious. Matt Hornbeck's like, what are you all laughing at here? This is great. Independence. Went on Independence by Mount Trashmore. Uh, and notice how empty the tray is. This was a very popular item. And so by the time we got done with uh, these three things, we were pretty much certain that we should have never gone there in the first place. And I hope it might be a very long time before we go back to our 75th birthday or something like that. Uh, it's like you get a, a clearer vision of what's around you sometimes and you just, we just left feeling bad for ourselves. So anyway, here's my big jump and transition. Ready? Today, we're going to continue working through discipleship, trying to get a bigger vision of that as well. I do what I can. Last Sunday, we we did begin a process of trying to get a clearer vision of who the disciples are. I mean, this is a group of men that as we work through Mark, we're going to keep seeing them over and over and over again. We're going to be thinking about these guys, talking about these guys. And the reality is that for most of us, we don't really have a good understanding of who they are, or of how they fit into this larger story. And so last week we talked about three things that we don't typically see or think about when we are reading about the disciples or we're talking about the disciples that I wanted to make sure we understood. The first thing I pointed out last week is that when we look at the disciples, we don't typically see the connections, relationships, and timing that's a part of the larger story. I mean, here we are in verses 16 to 20 this week, and you see Jesus walking along the the shoreline, and he sees two sets of brothers out fishing. He's like, hey, follow me. And instantly they go, okay. And and we sit back, and if that's all we know about them, we're like, wow, either these guys have incredible insight, and they understand who it is that is calling them to follow him like nobody else, or these are complete idiots who are way too gullible and just happen to get lucky that, that the guy who called them to follow him is Jesus. So which one is it, A or B? And, and what I pointed out last week, that it's actually C. There's another alternative here because what you have recorded for us here in Mark is not the full story. It's just not. And I'll pause on this point just to drive it home even, I hope, better than I did last Sunday. Remember that the gospel writers are not attempting to give you a complete understanding of who Jesus is. In terms of telling you every detail of what he did and what he said and what happened on Monday and then on Tuesday and then Wednesday and so on. All they're doing is including the specific details, stories, and episodes of teaching that get across their larger purpose of showing you Jesus Christ as as God and Savior. And so each one, as they approach their time to tell their story, they all choose different scenes. There's a lot of overlap. I get that. A lot of similarity. There's a fair amount of difference as well. 
And Mark here has chosen to jump into his story right at this specific point. After John the Baptist has been put in prison, here's Jesus walking along the shoreline and he's calling these guys to come follow him and they get up and do. And if you don't recognize that there's more to it than that, you're you're left scratching your head trying to figure out what's going on. And so I showed you two examples last week of how there is more to the story than what you see here. Example one was from John chapter 1 where you see another time that Jesus is interacting with these same men. They are disciples of John the Baptist. This may be a year before what we read about Mark 1. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's possible it's up to a year before. And and there are disciples of John the Baptist, and Jesus comes along. And John looks at Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And immediately, two of the disciples of John the Baptist say, See you, John, I'm going to follow this guy instead. And one of those two guys is Andrew, the guy we're reading about here, who with his brother Simon are out casting their nets into the sea. And John tells us that Andrew goes and gets his brother, and they go and they have dinner with Jesus that night, and he later meets Philip and Nathaniel as well. It's just one example of how there is more to that story than what you read here in Mark. Mark just started at this point, but there was stuff that happened prior. Another example I gave you that was, totally messed up by my mistake with the slides and letting this, blaming this thing, uh, was the possibility that Jesus is related to James and John. Did you, were you able to follow that at all last week? I hope you were. Because Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke doesn't do it, but Matthew, Mark, and John all record three specific women who are with Mary at the foot of the cross. They all refer to Mary Magdalene. They all refer to another Mary who is sometimes called the mother of James and Joseph, sometimes called the wife of Clopas. But there is a third individual referred to by each of these gospel writers. One calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so it's James and John's uh, mother. One calls her Salome, that's her name. The other one calls her Mary's sister, which would make her Jesus' aunt. Now, it's not certain that that's all correct. I've tried to stress that. It's just a good possibility, but I can't say 100% that that's right. But it sure makes sense within the context here, which, which then indicates if that's true, as Jesus sees James and John, these aren't guys he's just walking up on the first time. There's cousins. It's Uncle Zeb in the boat, and there's James and John, and he says, follow me, and they go, okay. I just wanted you to see there's more to the story. There's a lot more than what we see here, and you need to remember that as we read about all these different things. The second thing I pointed out is that when we look at the disciples, we don't typically see these guys as being just ordinary men. And, and that's true and not true all at the same time. I get that. Like On the one hand, we're going to be reading through Mark, and we're going to see them do the most ridiculous stuff, ask the most ridiculous questions, make the most ridiculous comments. And we're going to be sitting there up on our thrones of of perfection saying they're so stupid. If we had been in their place, we would have done it perfectly. And how could they miss this? How could they not see what is so evident? Well, yeah, I get that. They make mistakes. And we're going to recognize those mistakes along the way. But at the same time, we also look at them and go, yeah, but these are also the guys that Jesus chose. Like, he chose them, not us. He could have waited 2,000 years, right? He could have waited to pick 12 people out of here to go follow him forever. He didn't see value in that, apparently. Sorry, everyone who wanted to be one of those 12. He he saw value in those guys. 
He chooses them. He lets them have access to him that nobody else had. He teaches them personally. He trains them. And after he dies and raises from the dead, rises from the dead, he sends them out to become the foundation of the church. It's these men who will go on to write the New Testament, who will blaze trails for the Gospels into the unreached places of the earth, which at that point was everywhere. They could just walk in any direction. It was unreached, okay? They could go anywhere they wanted. And it is because of them that we are meeting here today. And so even though we we see their mistakes, we are in some ways in awe of them. And that's okay. I'm not against that. But just recognize who these guys are. They're nobodies. They are ordinary men. They're not particularly intelligent or educated. They're not particularly powerful. They're not particularly wealthy. A lot of them are just tradesmen, guys who lived in and around Galilee, which is like, you know, the hillbilly part of Judea. These aren't the guys that any other person would have picked to lead what Jesus wanted them to lead. And yet he does. And they go out and do amazing things. But remember, as we talk about these men, that we don't want to put them up on a pedestal. They're not, they're not Jesus himself. And while we do owe them respect, let's never forget, they're just ordinary guys. The third thing I pointed out to us was that when we look at the disciples, we don't typically see them as being central to the earthly ministry of Jesus. And I just re- asked this question. Why did Jesus have three years of public ministry? Other people would ask, why did he only have three years of public ministry? I'm asking, why did he have three years at all? Like, what was the value of that? Well, it depends on how you understand the purpose of that time. If you think that the purpose of his public ministry is he's walking around preaching and teaching, if you think that the purpose of that time is to call the masses to himself, to announce who he is and call people to repentance and belief, and he's trying to, to win people to himself so that he can build his church, if you think that's his purpose, and I have really bad news for you, he failed miserably at that. One, he only does it for three years. You think if he really wants to call the masses to himself, he would have done it for 30 or 60 or 80 or however long. You think about where he travels in his ministry. He hardly leaves Galilee. He occasionally will take a little trip here, a trip there, but he spends the vast majority of that time in the woods, so to speak, with these men. You you think about how he interacts with people. Yes, he preaches to thousands there in and around Galilee, but every time we watch him begin to draw a gathering to himself, what does he do? He scatters them. Oh, you all really happy that I I fed you yesterday? You need to have my, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon. Listen to this and then see if you want to stick around. We're going to look at that just the end result of that very briefly here in a moment, and people leave him in droves. What preacher who wants to gather masses to himself drives them away whenever he gets a chance? Nobody does that. But Jesus did it. So if his purpose is to reach the masses, he doesn't do a very good job. Maybe he's got a different purpose. Maybe there's something else there. And there's probably multiple things, but the one thing I would like to simply point out to us for consideration is that maybe one of the primary purposes of his public ministry was to train those men, to put them in situations and scenarios where they could watch him, 
see how he responds so they could learn from him so that they would then later on go out and do the same. Think about all the times Jesus teaches the, 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 the crowds and then goes back and he calls them to himself and says, now, do you understand what was happening right there? And they're like, no, Jesus explained this parable. I, don't, I didn't get that at all. What happened with this? Why did you say that? And he, he goes into detail with them. I really think that the, one of the main reasons he spends three years in public ministry is to prepare these men for the future of, of what's going to happen. And so those were the, the three things we looked at last Sunday, but there are three more we need to think through as well if we're really going to understand the disciples the way we should and understand what it's going to mean for us to be a disciple as well. So we're just going to pick up the count from last week. Number four, when we look at the disciples, we don't typically see the nuances in the terms disciple and apostle. We don't, we, we, we hear these words and we're going to read these words over and over and over again in Mark. We're going to see them in Matthew, Luke, and John as well as we work through it. And we're, we're, we're just fuzzy with, with how we understand these words, okay? And I want to make sure that we have a very good understanding of them. This is coming out of something I mentioned very briefly last week in my introduction, but never addressed. I said last week that when we talk about this group of men that we call the disciples, there is a great deal of imprecision in our language and meaning. And it's not a, a huge thing. It's not super important. But since this is the first time we're interacting with this group, and since we're going to keep interacting with them in the future, let's just get it out of the way now so we're all on the same page. First of all, what is a disciple? Let me give you a definition here that's very, very simple. A disciple is simply a learner, a, a pupil, a follower. But when I say that a disciple is a learner or a pupil, what I don't want you to think is that a disciple is a student. There is a difference between a student and and a disciple. I imagine every person in this room has been a student of something, a subject, a, something you had to do at work, that you could have cared less about, that you were not committed to, that you had not given yourself to. You're simply going through it because you have to for a job or diploma or whatever it is. You can be a student of something and not be a disciple. In order to really understand the difference, you have to always add this word follower back into it. I was trying to think of a, of a good modern equivalent for what it is to be a disciple. And the most modern thing I could think of is actually about 100, 200 years old. Are you familiar with the concept of apprenticeship? When, when someone would go and apprentice themselves to someone else to learn a trade. So maybe you wanted to be, to be a cabinet maker. You're gonna, you want to you apprentice in cabinetry. You go off and you find a cabinet maker who you think can teach you everything that you want to know about making cabinets. And you just simply go and you live in the barn. You live in the shed. And you get up every day for two years, three years, whatever it may be. And you work with this person. You're eating with this person. You're living with this person. You're doing just living every aspect of your life for cabinetry. That is a disciple. That is exactly what these men are being called to, to become, to follow Jesus in this way, to apprentice themselves to these things. And when we read this word in the gospel accounts, we want to make sure that we're understanding it correctly. When you think about the disciples that Jesus had, how many disciples do you think of? Well, no. Jesus didn't have 12 disciples. Jesus had Lots of disciples. 
Lots and lots of people who were wanting to follow him. And I say lots and lots, I don't mean like a thousand, but lots and lots above 12. And, and you're going to see this a number of times in Mark and, and the other Gospels as well. Let me show you just a few, few examples. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is going to meet a tax collector named Levi. Okay? He goes by what other name? Matthew, okay, so Levi, Matthew, he's going to meet this guy named Levi, he's going to call him to follow him as well, and that night, they're all going to go to Levi's house to eat a meal, and at the end of that meal, Mark tells us this, that as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him, many, Many disciples are with Jesus. I don't know how big a house Levi have, but there are many people in this room eating with these, these tax collectors and, and these sinners, Mark calls them. In Luke chapter 10, we're going to read about an episode where Jesus is going to send out his disciples on a, basically a, a little missions trip. Do you know how many he sends out in Luke chapter 10? Not 12. 72. He sends them out in 36 groups of twos to go and reach the, the cities around where they're serving, where they're, they're ministering. In John chapter 6, Jesus is going to preach that sermon I keep referring to, the eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon. Go home and read that today. It's very uplifting. Uh, he's doing it to offend the crowd, to drive them away, and it works. John writes this in John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in him in himself that his disciples were his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life; the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe." He's saying this to his disciples, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who uh, those who did not believe in who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And notice verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Did he lose some of the 12? No, but he lost some of his disciples. You see this one more place in Acts chapter 1, which is a passage that intrigues me confuses me all at the same time. In Acts chapter 1, there's 120 followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus in an upper room. And Judas is dead now. The, 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 uh, Jesus has risen back to the Father. He's ascended to the Father. And Peter stands up at one point and he says, hey, look, so Judas is gone, right? We, we, we know that. There's 11 of us left, but Jesus appointed 12. We need to find somebody who can take Judas's place. And so he, he gives a qualification for who they, can, who they can consider. Look at the qualification he gives here in verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John. Okay, we already read about that here in Mark 1. Beginning from that point until the day when he was taken up from, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they, they listen to his qualification. They look around the room and all the candidates, and they pick two guys. There might have been more, but two guys get named, Joseph and Matthias, and they pick Matthias. I'll pause. Here's my personal comment. This intrigues me because Jesus doesn't tell them to do this. Peter does it. He thinks it's a good idea, and we're never told it's not. 
But it's interesting to me that when we think about what it means to be an apostle, which I will talk about in just a moment, we're going to see that it has to do with people whom Jesus chooses personally. And he doesn't choose Matthias here. Peter and the other guys choose Matthias. Jesus will very soon enough choose someone else. It's going to be Paul. So you see an interesting situation here where I'm not sure that Peter's doing the right thing. He certainly thinks he is. He's certainly trying to. He doesn't have the spirit yet. And so they're, they're making decisions kind of in a time of crisis. And he chooses this guy. But the, the point I want you to see is that Joseph and Matthias are both disciples of Jesus since the baptism all the way to the ascension. In the end, all I'm trying to get you to understand is that Jesus had many disciples. Many people who were following him from the very beginning. And when we hear this word used, we need to understand that it doesn't always refer just to these 12 men. But it can refer to just these 12 men, too. And I don't have to prove that to you. You you probably came in here this morning with that default understanding in mind. Sometimes when we see the term disciples, it's only going to refer to the 12. Think of when Jesus uh, got on the boat with his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't an ocean liner, okay? It's a fishing boat. There's a small number of people in this boat with him crossing the way. Sometimes it's going to refer to just this specific group of men in whom he has chosen to invest a large amount of himself. Can you imagine, I mean, I, I try to think about this. Can you imagine being part of that group and hearing Jesus call out the roster that day? All right, I'm taking Jeremy, taking Jordan, taking Dave, taking Sean, taking John, everybody else, thanks for coming. Like, <laughs> he doesn't kick them out. But he chooses these guys to say, you are going to have special access to me. I'm going to show you things that others will only read about. You're going to hear teaching that others won't have the chance to hear. You're going to do things that others would never be able to do. Can you imagine the feeling you would have if your your name is called in that roster? Can you imagine what they saw? We can from what they wrote. I just, what, what a privilege. What, what an incredible opportunity they had to be this close to Jesus so that he would invest himself in them as they would prepare for ministry. He's going to choose these men, and it is these men that he will later name as apostles. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle is a specific term. It's a title. It's, it's a position you're in. It has to do with being sent. And so a few weeks ago now, we as a church sent Jared and Sharon to Indonesia to spend time with Jonathan and Sarah Farmer, our missionaries there. Jared and Sharon went out as apostles of Cornerstone Bible Church, in a sense. They were sent out personally from us on a mission. They had things to do to bring back a report, to be a blessing to them, to learn what's going on there. They were sent out personally by us on a mission to fulfill. Jesus is going to take these disciples and he is going to name them as his apostles, personally sent out by him on a mission, a mission of building his church. That's why there are no more apostles today, just so you know. You see a website or you see a church and the guy in charge is apostle so-and-so. 
He can call himself apostle. I guess that's fine. I think it's silly, but it's fine. He can call himself apostle. He is not an apostle. The apostles, the ones on whom Paul tells us in Ephesians, are are the foundation of the church, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles were a group of men personally chosen by Christ, personally sent out by Christ, personally given a mission to fulfill by Christ. And when they died, that was the end. Unless Jesus is appearing to you on the side, in which case let's talk about that, okay? The the apostles were a special group. And so out of the disciples, Jesus chooses disciples whom he then names as apostles and sends out to build his church. Does that make sense? You understand the difference in all these words and the nuances, how they're used? Okay, then let's move on to the fifth thing we don't typically see. When we look at the disciples, we don't typically see the true communal nature of discipleship. We don't typically see the true communal nature of discipleship. There is something I love here in verses 16 to 20, and it is the most, it's going to sound like the most meaningless point. But I love the fact that Mark names names. He doesn't say that Jesus is walking along the shoreline and he calls men to follow him. He doesn't say Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he calls people to follow him. No, it's not generic. He calls Simon. He calls Andrew. He calls James. He calls John. And as we keep working through the text, he's going to keep calling other men by name. We're going to know their names all the way to the end of the story. We're going to watch these specific individuals talking with and reacting to and interacting with and asking questions of Jesus. And throughout this story, these men are going to be like a family of sorts. They're a a true community. One commentator said it like this. He said, the community that Jesus forms is not a nameless and faceless mass, but a community of individuals whose names are known. That means that for Mark and for Jesus, discipleship isn't some, you know, personless, programmatic thing. It's personal. It's knowing people, understanding them, seeing them as individuals. It's it's about relationship for Jesus, Not, not anything else. That's a quick one. Number six, number six, when we look at the disciples, we don't typically see the missional nature of discipleship. We don't see the missional nature of discipleship any more than we see the communal nature of discipleship, I think. It's easy for us as we read verses 16 to 20 to focus on Jesus' call to follow me, right? That's pretty much all I've talked about, kind of purposely. Follow me, he says, right? Yes. But he also says something else. Do you remember the rest of it? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. See, there's more to it than just the call to follow. And as people look at this call, they, they try to think it through, I think, a little too much. They try to they say, is there any like practical implication for what he says here? Like maybe, maybe we're supposed to think about fishing as the, the means to ministry. So what's the hook in our ministry? What's the bait? Who wears the funny pants in ministry, you know? 
Who, who, should we fish from a boat or from the shoreline? Well, the disciples are from a shoreline, so what does that mean in ministry? Or maybe because they were using nets, we should think about net casting in ministry. If you think I'm, I'm making stuff up or being silly, I'm not. There are people who write about this and think about what, what does this analogy mean practically for ministry? It doesn't mean anything practically. They say, okay, well, it must have a biblical significance that is deeper than what we first see. In the Old Testament, did you know, and this is true, in the Old Testament, fishing analogies are generally negative. Yeah, I mean, if you'll often read in the Psalms and in Ezekiel and in the prophets, people, evildoers, being caught in the net of their own wickedness. Or you'll read comments about how God will one day cast a net of judgment over people. And so they're going, oh, okay, so the apostles must be engaged in some form of of God's final judgment on the wicked. Again, I'm not making that up. This is stuff people talk about and write about. And if you hear it, I want you to be be aware of it in advance. This is not a purely practical thing. This is not just some biblical reference to something in the past. But I'll tell you what it is, and it is kind of practical, and it is kind of biblical. It's Jesus simply letting these men know that they are going to have a mission to fulfill if they follow him. It's as simple as that. These men are being called to a mission. Following Jesus is going to change their focus in life. It's going to change what they do. It's going to change what they live for. From this point on, they won't simply be fishermen. They will be ministers of Jesus Christ cleverly disguised as fishermen. Their target is going to change completely. Now they're going to be aiming for a different catch. As we think about these things, none of them are complicated. None of them are are deeper than, than what's clear here in the text. What does this teach us about our discipleship as well? Well, let me give you three things that we learn about discipleship for us. Number one, we have been sent. We have been sent. We are not apostles in the sense that these men are, but every one of us have been sent. And and I love love the way that in Matthew, Jesus words the Great Commission, what we call the Great Commission, right? It's going, make disciples of all the nations. The assumption being that you're doing this, that it doesn't even need to be said. The, The options aren't for those who go and those who stay. The assumption is that Everyone goes. And to be a disciple of Jesus is not the thing where you you, you sign your name on the dotted line and then you sit down and you're done. Discipleship will always demand and require going. Now, I get it. I get this. It's not going to look the same in everybody. It's not going to play out the same in every situation and every person. God uses all of us in different ways. Some of us, are going to excel in going out and being fishers of men. Others of us are going to struggle. But regardless of of those specific details, all of us have been sent, and we must see ourselves in that light. The discipleship means going. Number two, being a disciple of Jesus means being a part of a family and of a community. You know, a, a few months ago now, we talked about this in our members meeting this morning, for those of you who weren't here, but just very briefly. A few months ago, we did a whole series called The Future and Foundation and Future of Cornerstone. You remember that? 
In that series, we were talking about what is the way that, you know, what's the right way of going about doing this thing we call church from a strategy perspective? What's the, the best way to do this? And we gave a number of examples, a number of scenarios that others have used. And one of those scenarios was what we call the bigger is better model, where the goal of, of your ministry, the strategy, excuse me, of your ministry, the way you're going to do your, your purpose is to get everyone into one location and keep trying to build this thing up as big as you can. Bigger buildings, bigger crowds, more programs, bigger is better. And we said, when we looked at that, that that was not really our heart. Part of the reason that that isn't our heart is because of this very point right here. When Jesus called men to discipleship, he called them to a relationship we're, we're not that big now. I don't know about you, but I already struggle with that part. Even in the size crowd we have on a typical Sunday. You know, 200 people on an average Sunday. And I don't even talk to 150 of them, probably. They, they go right out the door and I don't ever even get a chance to say hi. And that's quite fine with a lot of people when they think about church and how a church should be done. They're, they're more than happy to come in and, and just sit down and, and not talk to anybody and get up instantly and get out because they don't want the relationship. They don't want the connections. They don't want the accountability that comes with what it means to be a part of the, of the body of Jesus. Well, we're not okay with that. We're not okay with that. If you're going to be a part of Cornerstone, we want to know you. You may not know everybody, but you need to know somebody, <laughs> some bodies. We, we want to, to, to have names not just numbers. We want to know people and relationships and be in the hurt and be in the joy. We want to be a family centered around the person of Jesus Christ. So that's why when we thought about what's our our strategy for for doing ministry here in Hampton Roads, the the goal isn't to have a thousand people. We don't want to, I'd rather have a hundred, quite frankly. I love being able to look in the room and know the names of people I'm talking to. That's just, that's, I don't know how you would do it otherwise. We want this kind of, of ministry, and quite frankly, you should want that as well, to be known and be engaged in the family and community in which God has placed you. And number three, if we're going to be disciples, and this is a little overlap from number one, but stick with me, we, we have to see ourselves as being on mission as well. Okay? That, that life isn't, just about us. And I, again, I understand because I struggle with this myself, of, of the call to be selfish, to be self-focused, to only think of yourself. I, it's such a difficult battle to fight. But, but Jesus died for us so that we could live for him. He, he died for us so that we could go out and be his body here on earth ambassadors for him with a message of reconciliation that even though God is is holy and righteous and has every right to damn us to hell for all eternity for our sin and rebellion, even though he has that right in his grace and mercy and love, he gave his own son to pay for those sins, to take God's wrath on himself so that God would not have to pour it out on us. Somebody had to pay for those sins. It's either us or Jesus. And Jesus willingly gave himself so that everyone who placed their hope, their trust, their faith in him would be saved. And now we are told to 
be going and tell others this good message, this good news of God's forgiveness for us in Christ. You think about these men and think about their lives, because we have the advantage of being able to look ahead. Like most of us in this room probably know the end of the story for a lot of these guys. We're going to look into Acts, and we're going to see them operating there in Jerusalem and in the area around the early church. We're going to read the epistles and read about what they're doing and what they're writing, where they're going, what they're teaching. And then, because they're not around anymore, we've figured it out, we're smart enough, we know they die. And that's the end of the story, right? No. Because for people who are disciples of Jesus, death isn't the end, it's the beginning. For people who are disciples in Jesus, they now have the hope of new life because we, we who believe, we don't follow a, a, a mascot for an ideology. We don't, we don't simply follow some good teacher who taught us good principles for living. We don't even follow a dead savior. We follow a risen king. And every one of us who have named him as our Lord and Savior know that one day we too will live with him forever. It's the end of discipleship. It's the beauty, the goal, the the thing we have to look forward to in the end, not on our goodness, but based on Christ's sacrifice for us. Will you bow your heads just for a moment? Jesus, we, we see how deficient our understanding of discipleship is. We think if our name is on a, a church roll somewhere, if we, if we go to a service, that somehow this makes us yours. But you have called us to so much more than that. Being a disciple of you entails a lot of things. It's about being sent It's about being part of this assembly, this community, this family that you are putting together that you call the church. It's about being on mission for you, spreading the good news of what you have done for us to others. And Lord, we fail so much in all of those pieces. And that's why at the end of the day, we're reminded and encouraged by the fact that ultimately this thing called discipleship finds its beginning and its end in you. And so, Lord, in all our failures, you are our hope. In all our shortcomings, we place our faith in you. In everything we do good and everything we do wrong, we recognize that ultimately we could do nothing, nothing apart from you. And so we come this morning, we give ourselves again, and we will do it again and again and again in the future. We give ourselves again this morning to you and ask that you work in our hearts by your spirit through your word to help us be the disciples that you intended for us to be we thank you that you are not a a dead teacher a dead savior who who can be of no help to us you are a risen savior and it is in that faith in that confidence in that hope and trust we now pray that you will do something in us change us and help us experience this new life that we have in you Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity this morning to dig into it. I pray that you will work it in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.